We okay? Well, after last night's talk, uh, I feel a little bit odd because um, while the entire conference is supposed to be debunking the notion of sectarianism uh, and the fact that we have an ongoing history of some kind of iron cage here that uh, it just repeats itself, that's in fact what I'm going to be talking about because that's in fact what uh, Muslim scholars are talking about and not just in the medieval period but in the modern period. What we have, I think, with the Khawarij uh, is this rather strange phenomenon of a medieval group, or at least an early Muslim group, somewhere around, you know, ending somewhere around the 9th or 10th century, not discounting their bodies, um, who, while in the, uh, the early sources, the medieval sources, such as Tabari, we seem to have people who are actually voicing assent for and defense of the Hadiji cause. So we have people who are marching under the Hadiji banner and, in theory, raising their swords to it also. Uh, and this, of course, gets embedded in the early tradition, and I'll go back to this in a second. But we have this rather strange thing that we do not have any Khawadij in the modern period. So we have them in our early sources, but we don't have them anyplace else, at least self-identified. We have them as a group to be identified, but not as a group that is willing to stand up and say, yes, we are part of an ongoing heritage. So it, it's a rather strange, uh, it, it's one of the unique, I think, problems with sectarianism when talking about a particular group, is that we normally have an ongoing body of tradition of self-interpretation uh, and self-understanding, and we do not have that in the case of the Khawarij. Uh, what does that mean? Um, well. I mean, I guess I could follow up a little bit slightly and say that, that in some cases, the, the medieval theologians and the medieval writers were very good Orientalists uh, because they managed to cast uh, certain kinds of features of Islam in ways that were very easy to reinvent and reuse in the modern period. So uh, this is a bit of uh, one of those things that I'm going to jump a little bit between history and modernity. I think you have to do that with this particular group. And because I'm in religious studies and I shape-shift history anyway, it doesn't much matter to me. Um, and yes, the, the, the talk fits actually squarely with this notion of history and theory, because what we have is something of a historical origin that's turned into a theory and gets reinvented over time. So, as a religio-political protest movement, the Khawarij died off in the 9th or 10th century. Uh, and as a symbol of religious zealotry and rebellion, uh, they've lived on. And this is no accident. Uh, there are great, there's a great deal of information, both in the Sunnah, uh, that attests to the fact that, that this group was some somehow going to emerge and then reemerge throughout history. And while there are a number of citations in historical sources that suggest actual uh, Hadiji uprisings or individuals who are willing to adopt the name Hadiji and, and, and rise up, it's often not very clear why they're doing it. Uh, so we almost have a kind of innate ontological notion of rebellion without the surrounding causation and indications of why people are doing this. It's a rather interesting thing. And of course, that the problematic of this is these are Sunni sources, so we're not getting a lot of causal information. And then we have things like the medieval scholars, uh, the heresiographers, uh, such as the Shahistani, uh, who were anxious to provide guidance uh, for future Muslim generations 
and they cast the group in a kind of established, as a threat to the established political order, and, and thus worthy of religious sanction. So the very name, uh, which is also really kind of a brand name, to be honest, that, that's, that's essentially what it is, it, it becomes synonymous with rebellion uh, against legitimate rule. And the definition that a Shahistani, who dies in 1153, uh, gives, is, is a kind of uh, decocting of these earlier images and sources to provide something that is of future use, to have both current use and future use. And he defines a strategy in the following way. Whoever rebels against the rightful leader agreed upon by the community is called a strategy. Whether this rebellion occurred at the time of the companions against the rightly guided leaders or against their beneficent successors and leader of any time. So here we have a, a ready-made reinvention that is created within the Muslim community itself for obviously what is taken to be quite good reasons is that we have trouble with people rebelling and we want to do something about it. What we don't have is a clear indication of why these people are rebelling and there's no deconstruction of this. So this definition, which by the way is repeated by modern commentators, uh, you run across it all the time in newspapers, in, in magazine articles, in, in pronouncements by a member, by people from El Azhar, um, that the notion of a, that the whole attitude is a kind of a trans-historical phenomenon, uh, an ism, if you will, uh, in its own right, that may, may reoccur and manifest itself in different settings. Uh, I would say this, I mean, it's almost as if the Islamic tradition frames the Hadijites as a useful sectarian notion to reflect upon, borrowing from Levi-Strauss, it's something good to think. And it's something good to think because if we think about it enough, perhaps people will do it. Um, but of course, it doesn't quite work out that way. Um, now, we are clearly in a time uh, where this, the Hadijites are good to think, uh, if anybody has been following anything that's on the news, they're all over, all over the place in the Middle East. They're all over the place, and you know, in name, uh, in Egypt, in books, in magazines. Um, and in Egypt, this is, and which is part of my focus. Uh, and I just came back from that from a week-long trip there. The, the number of references and books that you can find on the shelves about this movement is just—it's amazing. And they're all connected up, of course, with with Daesh. Um, and I should just say that it's not just in Egypt. Uh, I just happened to be there when the Brussels attack happened. Uh, and I was watching the news at night. And uh, they were running an interview on one of the channels with uh, Mubin Sheikh, a, a Canadian who is an ex-radical, who is a counter-terrorism operative for the Canadian government and is working to de-radicalize militants. And here he's on television talking about the usefulness of deploying the, the word and reference Khawarij in order to wean people away from Daesh and Salafi jihadism. Uh, and then, for those of you who are reading your economist, uh, there was just a three-part article on counter-radicalization counter that appeared in last week's uh, uh, Economist in which there is the same reference to using the uh, usefulness of drawing parallels to the uh, Hawaii to fort well, would be jihadists. Uh, to be honest, I know of no example of this where it does anything of the sort. Um, but we do have a very interesting modern historical example, at least in Egypt, with members of Islamic Jihad, who in order, who ha after having been arrested and convicted for their involvement with the assassination of Sadat, 
uh, around 10 years after their jailing, uh, wrote a four-volume set of booklets uh, in which they were essentially admitting and confessing the fact that they had gone astray. And part of their way of self-confessing and demonstrating that was to admit that they had taken the fantasy path. So whether it's going to get people from becoming radicals or not, I'm not sure. But it certainly is something that's culturally accepted and acknowledged, I think, within modern Muslim societies, that if you admit it, well, maybe you can be welcomed back as long as you're turning away from radicalism. So what we have with the Hadithites is a sectarian tr tradition kept alive not by inside members interpreting and reinterpreting themselves over time, but rather by outsiders determined to eliminate patterns of thought and action viewed as inimical to the Muslim community. And this lack of clear-cut identifiable sect has created lots of ambiguity, and part of that ambiguity is with the way that the term even gets introduced into conversations and into interpretations in places like modern Egypt. Uh, oftentimes what we have are, uh, are people who are, in, in essence, repeating the same uh, quotations from the Hadith. They will quote, for example, Shahistani's definition, and this will serve as a an accusation without any kind of contextualization. We find uh, members of al-Azhar doing this all the time. The history of this in Egypt starts primarily in the 50s and continues throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, dies off a bit around 2000, and then not surprisingly kicks up again with, uh, with vengeance post-August 2013 uh, when the government cracks down against uh, the Muslim Brothers. Um, but what, but the way that it is used is precisely the problem, of, the problematic that we have of people using ideas and sectarian images, which suggest that it is part of a deep ontology of what it means to be Muslim. That these groups are almost that these people are are buried in the tradition, and we have people. I mean, modern writers who are talking about this that the Hawadish will be with us for all time. And in fact, at the end of time, they're built into the, uh, the eschaton and the eschatology, that they will somehow uh, be joining up uh, with, with Satan at the end time and will finally be defeated. But until that time, they're going to be with us. Uh, the difficulty is, or the challenge is, who the hell are they? And we have lots of people who are willing to, uh, who are willing to make those accusations, but we have absolutely no one within the Islamist community, whether moderate or militant. We have no one in any of the Salafi Qadadi groups. We have no one among Daesh who is willing to take responsibility for being these people. In fact, they're all running from the term. So in some ways, it's a very, it, it, it's a term that has worked. I mean, it is, it is one, of the, one of the few things that you can find Muslims across sectarian divides that agree upon that this group is anathema. The problem is, is that what they're associated with continues on anyway. So, so what I thought I'd do is, is to give you some uh, examples of how this, this gets used. Not surprisingly, this stuff is not continuous. It, it's almost as if it, it works out precisely the way that the historical record in the Sunnah suggests that it will emerge and reemerge and reemerge across time. And in Egypt, anyway, the way this has happened is it's emerged and reemerged in the context of episodic bouts of political violence carried out by Islamist groups. Uh, and so in the, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, with the assassination of Sadat in 81, you have a whole discourse that starts to get 
you know, reawakened, the same kinds of things, and it's almost the same pattern, the same language, and it gets used over and over again, and it gets aimed at Islamists. It was aimed a little bit at Hassan al-Banab, the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood, but not a lot, but certainly Sayyid Qutb, it was aimed at him quite a bit. Uh, it was used also against the blind Sheikh, Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman, during his trials. Uh, and he was, by the way, quite clever. We'll talk, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the way the, uh, the people were accused to use this themselves. Uh, but then it gets reawakened again and again and again, right? So this, and, and now, of course, post-2013 uh, post in Egypt, it's not just that radical Muslim brothers or those who have become radicalized are, are victims of this, but can you conveniently, at least for, I would say, the government and some religious authorities, it's the entirety of the Muslim Brotherhood that has become associated with this. And it, it's no accident that this has happened, not just post-August 2013. Uh, in December, of course, of 2013, is when the Muslim Brotherhood was declared a terrorist organization. But then, of course, with the rise of IS, these things have elided and made it very easy for people now to talk in, in, in totalistic terms that all these people are of the same by the way, the term that's used is nilla. They're all of the same one. They're, they're all part of the same group. And you can't differentiate between them. Now, this iron cage, of course, is, is, is enforced by people like uh, the Mufti of Egypt. Uh, he's, he's used this all the time. The past, um, the past Mufti, uh, Ali Goma, has done this quite a bit. Post in, in, in fall of 2013, he actually went on and said, uh, he, was, he was quoted as saying that all of the Muslim brothers need to be killed because they are essential, and he characterized them as Khawaj. So this becomes a justification for them going after a variety of people. Uh, and the current uh, Grand Mufti, uh, Shalki al-Alam, uh, Shalki al-Alam, has just come out with a you know very large book uh, about about radicalization and the ideology of radicalization, in which he essentially labels the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS and others and all these groups as 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 members of the Khawatijs, his own group. Again, without any explanation whatsoever as to why people become radicalized, the name itself is an explanation. But what I'd like to give you is a couple of examples of people who have problematized this, at least in a brand. This is all politicized for their own ends. There's a lot of this terminology also being used in modern Egypt by secularists. Uh, so secularist writers who are essentially seeing, this is especially post-2013, they're seeing this as an opportunity to show the dangers, for example, of the wedding of religion and politics in Islam. So they're using this as an example of a historical example of an ongoing problem buried deep within the Islamic tradition. And the solution to this, of course, is secularization. Uh, and the, so they're, they're, they're using it again for their own purposes, saying that the Khawarij of this ongoing problem, we would get rid of the problem if we only would come up with a solution, a modern solution of, of, of separating religion and state. Um, another example of this, and somebody who's been very, very clever at it, uh, is Yusuf of Qadawi, who has written about this quite a bit from the 60s on. Um, and he does the same thing that anybody who is a trained scholar would do. He quotes from the Sunnah, he quotes from a, a variety of medieval scholars to show that he knows the origins of the Khawarij and he denounces this group. But then, 
and, and this is, I mean, it's, it's quite, quite smart. He starts to do a kind of sociological critique of why modern young Muslim men in Egypt become poetic. And this kind of sociological critique is really a condemnation of unemployment, of drugs, of a lack of values because of the secular government. Uh, he even goes so far as to quote from the study that was carried out by Saladin Ibrahim, who went into the prisons in Egypt and had permission to interview some of the people that become militant. So he's, he's using uh, the actual conditions in Egypt to try to, act, to explain radicalism, unlike the actual word itself, which never gets explained. But he's unpacking it. And before you know it, the Khawadids become not just victimizers, but victims themselves. Uh, so it, it's, it's actually, it's actually a, a quite, a, quite a smart uh, interpretation. And there's a good deal of this happening right now in the news, and, and people writing about this. Uh, people who are writing articles, for example, who are saying things like, we are, we are neither with the Khawadij, nor we are we with the uh, Beni Umayyad. And so, in, in, in a sense, what they're doing is denying the fact that they are radicals, nor are they with the dictators. Because this is part of the, the debating issue that the Khawadij gets introduced into, is what are the options for modern Muslims to change the politics of their region. And often what is left up to them is either to become violent or to you know, kind of uh, concede to the, uh, to the dictatorships. And of course, if you understand the terminology in its original kind of iron cage meaning, it would essentially mean you, essentially you, you bow down to the dictators and you become obedient. But I, I, so what, what I think is kind of interesting about this is that in some cases, what we have are modern interpreters who are making the idea of what the Khawarij are far more complex than the original medieval meanings are. Unintentionally, of course, and they're not back projecting that meaning, but because the two are used interchangeably, uh, and I, I don't know if this is a hopeful sign or not, that what we're really finding are people who are taking that kind of deep-seated ontological notion and problematizing it, it, it themselves in order to critique the current social political situation 